today on Against the Grain. A number of things are bad for your health. Is economic inequality one of them? I'm CS. We'll represent a conversation with the population health expert and author, Stephen Bezruchka, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. If only we could eat better and exercise more. If only we could get regular checkups and preventative health care. If only we could make changes like that, people in the U.S. would be healthier. But we're already very healthy compared to other countries, right? We pour stupendous sums of money into health care and sophisticated medical technology, So it stands to reason that our mortality rate, life expectancy, and other health indicators shine compared to other countries, right? Or is very little of what I've said true, valid, justified, supported by evidence? For several decades, Stephen Bezruchka has been calling conventional wisdom on these matters into question. He's Associate Teaching Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington, where he teaches in the School of Public Health a board member of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, Stephen worked for decades as an emergency physician. His new book is Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. When Stephen Bezruchka and I connected recently, I asked him how the U.S. compares with other countries when it comes to infant mortality rates. So infant mortality is the is typically the number of infant deaths, uh, children under the age of one, that happen per thousand live births. And uh, the numbers range from a little over one per thousand to 80 or 90 uh, right now in countries such as Afghanistan. The U.S. number is about 5.9. And as I said, the lowest number is uh, just a little over one. And so we have a lot of babies die in the first year of life that uh, wouldn't if we had the infant mortality rates in 40, 50 other countries. That is, we fall behind all the other rich countries and quite a few poorer ones in how many infants die in this country. Yeah, you're right that 50 children die in the U.S. every day who wouldn't die if we had Slovenia's infant mortality rate. What about life expectancy? How does life expectancy in this country compare with those of other countries? So life expectancy is a measure of uh, if mortality rates didn't change in the particular year in question, I'm going to refer to 2021, uh, then the average length of life, if mortality rates didn't change, is that number called life expectancy. So I have been tracking this uh, number for countries uh, since the 1950s. And back in the 1950s, the United States had life expectancy numbers that were in the top five or 10 in the world. But what's happened since the 1950s is that other countries have seen more rapid improvements in life expectancy, length of life, than the United States. And so I coined the term Health Olympics, oh, about uh, 25 years ago, uh, But if health were an Olympic event and the race was how long you lived, life expectancy, uh, we wouldn't be there for the final day's race. We would have been disqualified in the trials. 43 countries have longer lives uh, than we do in the United States. When I went to medical school in 1970, 
we ranked 17th. When I went to public health school in 1992, we ranked 22nd. In 2019, we ranked tied for 36th. So in the ensuing years, we've dropped even further to rank at 44. As I said, there are 43 countries where people live longer lives. And they include, of course, all the other rich countries and some such as uh, Croatia, uh, Chile, uh, Slovenia, uh, Thailand even, uh, where people in 2021 at least had longer lives. What diseases or conditions account for most deaths in the U.S.? What are people dying of here? Uh, The leading killer uh, has been and remains uh, cardiovascular disease, heart attacks, uh, strokes, and and those forms of, of killers. Number two is cancer. And for 2020, 21, and 22, the third cause of death was COVID. If we eradicated the three leading causes of death in 2021, heart disease, cancer, and COVID, we would gain about seven years in life expectancy and be close to being the longest-lived country, but we still wouldn't be. How does COVID's, COVID-19's death rate in the U.S. compare with the rate in other countries? And uh, to what extent did COVID reduce life expectancy in the U.S.? COVID reduced life expectancy by, I would say, two years. Um, in terms of the numbers of deaths, we have 1.1 million deaths attributed to COVID since the pandemic began. That's the long, that's the highest number of deaths. Now, we have a a population of uh, 330 million. So if we divide the number of deaths by the population and get rates, uh, we're somewhere in the top 10 nations. So we have, we've not done very well in dealing with COVID-19. So you've painted a rather sobering picture, and um, we might think, many of us might think, that reversing uh, these trends, improving the situation on the individual and the population level is up to the individual. You know, if only we ate healthier, exercised more, sought preventative health care more frequently, you know, it comes down to lifestyle choices and health-related behaviors. Is this just a matter of changing these kinds of behaviors? I wish it were. Um, I, I worked for 30 years as an emergency physician, and uh, I tended to blame my patients with all these bad behaviors uh, that brought them into the emergency department. But then I discovered something that uh, totally changed my thinking on health production. You know, in medical school, I was a vegan. Uh, I exercised prodigiously. I mean, I did all the things that you're supposed to do as an individual. And about 25 years ago, I discovered that the longest-lived country in the world, Japan, it has been since 1978, has three times the proportion of men smoking as the United States. This absolutely astounded me. I, I'm always looking for what doesn't fit what I think is true and then uh, force myself to understand why. So if Japan can be the longest-lived country in the world and have so many more men smoking, that suggests that personal behaviors don't matter as much as we think. Similarly, for diet and exercise, I mean, they're important. I follow those precepts, but they clearly aren't as important as, uh, as we think. Yeah, you note in your book that Okinawa was, for a time, the healthiest prefecture in Japan. 
and their diet was predominantly pork fat and noodles. I'm speaking with Stephen Bezruchka. He's Associate Teaching Professor Emeritus in the Departments of Health Systems and Population Health and of Global Health at the University of Washington's School of Public Health. His new book is Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, if Japanese people, and especially men, smoke a whole lot more than people in the U.S., and if Okinawans, at least for a long time, ate um, things we wouldn't consider, I, I think most health professionals would not consider to be very healthy, then what explains why population health in Japan is so much better than in the U.S.? I would ask people to uh, observe whether they ever see a lone Japanese tourist. And when I ask that of people, they say no. <laughs> They're always together. And then I ask, do you see a lone American tourist? And they say all the time. So there is this Japanese value of wa or social harmony in which you uh, are most concerned for the group uh, getting along. And you may have your own feelings, your tatamai, but the group's feelings or hone takes precedent. So you suppress your own individualism so the group has harmony. In study after study after study, social support at the family and community level matters more for producing health than the behaviors like smoking and, and alcohol consumption, uh, medical advances such as intensive care units for cardiac disease, various forms of exercise. Uh, these are the social factors that matter far more than what we uh, consider to be important for health production. To follow up on what you were saying about medical care and kind of medical technology, people might think, many people may think that good medical care, good health care produces health. Is that true? The best estimates of the effect of health care on a population in terms of uh, avoidable mortality is on the order of 10%. That is about 10% of healthcare consumption can really impact health. So that leaves 90% <laughs> that uh, is a much bigger figure. And so let's unpack that 90%. If we go to our healthiest state, the American state with the longest life expectancy, uh, it's Hawaii. And uh, it has been for quite a while. The Department of Health in Hawaii produced a report on, called Social Determinants of Health in Hawaii in uh, about 10 years ago. And they put a graphic on page two that I've reproduced in the book. And it's got a mountainside uh, and it's got a pass, then a, a water flowing down a steep waterfall, then the river flowing into the ocean. And where the river flows into the ocean, in the ocean are all the chronic diseases that we suffer from as we age. Hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, lung disease, uh, and so on. So, and they call this downstream effects of, of health production. On the shore are the behaviors on one side of the river, exercise, uh, smoking, that sort of thing. On the other side of the river is healthcare, access to healthcare. So the Department of Health in Hawaii situates all these downstream. And Stephen, I want to ask you about the, the upstream factors identified in this graphic. But before that, you have found some data on what happens to death rates when doctors go on strike. And this is indicative, I think, in your opinion and in mine, based on reading your book, of the extent to which healthcare helps us stay healthy. What, what, what did you find or what has been shown in terms of what happens to death rates 
when doctors are on strike? So this is a paradox. Uh, when doctors stop working, the available studies show that undertakers, morticians, have less work to do. So there's a review paper published in the prestigious Social Science and Medicine Journal of what happens to mortality when doctors go on strike. So they review the studies on this and they conclude uh, that apparently mortality seems to decline during doctors' strikes. And I can review a few of them. Uh, there was one, for example, in 1973 in Los Angeles when anesthesiologists went on strike because they wanted to make more money. And so uh, for about a month, uh, nobody had any surgery in, uh, in Los Angeles County. During the strike, the county coroner death rates went down, and after the strike, they went up past previous levels to make up for <laughs> lost surgery deaths. Okay, so uh, the effects of medical care, you argue, based on a lot of evidence and research, is limited. You write that healthcare is not the major force producing health in a population, and then you said earlier that lifestyle choices, health-related behaviors, uh, that falls far short of explaining health in a population. So why are the effects of medical care so limited? And I guess then we maybe go back to the uh, Hawaii, State of Hawaii Department of Health graphic, which showed that uh, this is downstream stuff. And I assume then you're going to say that upstream stuff is more about uh, causality and more about the reasons why population health can get degraded. Yes, so there are a whole host of concepts that are uh, under the cover term social determinants of health. This came into public health uh, uh, knowledge about, oh, 20 years ago. And these are factors such as poverty. Poorer people are sicker and die younger than richer people. Pollution, uh, you know, we now know that particulate matter in the air, uh, little uh, invisible particles less than two and a half microns, uh, they're very harmful to you. Uh, that a whole host of other factors, especially conditions in early life, uh, all of these are social factors that uh, impact our health, and those are conditioned, as the Department of Health in Hawaii uh, points out, by socioeconomic circumstances. That's above the waterfall with the uh, social determinants of health. And then above that, right at the top in the Hawaii graphic, political context and governance. So somehow, Hawaii recognizes the importance of politics in terms of producing health. It's the most upstream factor. And what do we mean by politics? Well, that's, that's a whole other subject, but it's the choices societies make uh, for who gets what and, uh, and who has the power and how that power is used. And, and so power relations in a society really determine its health outcomes. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Stephen Bezruchka joins me. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Washington's School of Public Health. He worked for decades as an emergency physician. He serves on the board of the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. We are talking about his new book, Inequality Kills Us All. It's published by Routledge. Inequality Kills Us All. So inequality, economic inequality, income and wealth inequality is a, an important focus of your book. And you indicate that there is a lot of it in the U.S. Before we get to economic inequalities impact on health, on population health, is the U.S. more unequal than other rich nations? Uh, absolutely. It's not the most unequal, but it's uh, certainly among the rich nations, much more inequality. 
in the United States. So, yes, uh, inequality can be measured in a variety of ways. Uh, it can refer to income or wealth. If we look at wealth, you know, the richest person has a quarter of a trillion dollars of wealth. And, uh, and the bottom half of the United States have no wealth at all. Now, wealth is a difficult thing to assess since most of us don't uh, reveal that. But income is revealed on tax returns, and things like that. And so that data is, uh, is more commonly used in analyses. Uh, and I can begin to discuss that. The first studies appeared in 1979, uh, linking income inequality to health outcomes, mortality outcomes among various countries. And uh, to date, there are oh, three, four hundred studies, all showing that more income inequality is not good for health. And we can ask, is this really a causal relationship or not? And one way to infer causality is to use the 1964 U.S. Surgeon General's Smoking and Health Report, where they lay out the criteria for inferring that smoking causes worse health. And, and all of these criteria in that report are satisfied for the income inequality health relationship. So we can say inequality kills. Inequality kills. So what specifically in your mind and based on what you've researched, what does inequality do to the body such that people's health becomes degraded? And your book says inequality kills us all. It doesn't say inequality kills just the people on the lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. So make the argument for economic inequality harming the health of people who are doing well as well as people who are not doing well. So inequality forces us to make social comparisons and we find ourselves uh, lower down in the pecking order and that creates a lot of stress. The United States is one of the most highly stressed countries in the world when you rank countries by uh, subjective indicators asking people how stressed they are. We're somewhere in the top five of the most stressed countries in the world. So uh, we don't smoke much, so I would say stress is the 21st century tobacco. It's really the major factor that kills us through a lot of, uh, we have to dissect the what stress does to the body. Mostly it produces a lot of inflammation, uh, a lot of cellular changes that produce a lot of uh, conditions and diseases uh, that lead us to a to an early grave. Well, we could we could say that people who are poorer and maybe even people in the middle class, since they aspire to have higher social status, they experience this what you call psychosocial stress and suffer uh, health wise because of it. But what about people who are doing very well? Are you also arguing that they experience some kind of um, harmful stress because because of status anxiety? Uh, absolutely. I think uh, uh, there's a story told about Michael Milken, who was a junk bond trader and uh, made a lot of money. You know, Forbes does an annual list of billionaires, and some years back, Michael Milken got on the Forbes billionaire list. And a friend of his was uh, uh, congratulating him. And uh, the response, I'm told, Michael Milken said was, but I'm at the bottom. So he made the list, but he was at the bottom. And so even in, the, in those people who make so much money uh, and have so much wealth, they feel like, unless they're at the top, they feel stress about it. And this is not new. Uh, you know, George Bernard Shaw wrote 
about uh, wrote about this back in 1927 that uh, we're very concerned about income inequality and uh, and we cling to where we are on the income inequality slope and push off those behind us and we pay fawning attention to those above us it's a very toxic and situation what connection do you see or has been noticed between economic inequality and self-medication with drugs, including opioid consumption? So we consume about three quarters of the world's opioids. Why do we do this? Well, a lot of people say, well, it's big pharma that got doctors to prescribe opioids, but Big Pharma has sort of tamed its uh, advertising of opioids, and we have more than 100,000 deaths per year from opioid overdoses. And why is that? Well, opioids treat pain, and pain comes in two flavors, physical pain and social pain. And in experimental studies, even acetaminophen, you know, the over-the-counter analgesic will uh, treat social pain, but opioids in, in the various forms do a much better job. And so people in the United States find themselves so stressed out, feeling so much social pain that they self-medicate, and with the addition of fentanyl, uh, to whatever they're consuming, uh, it's easy to overdose. But I think that uh, it's not just the addition of fentanyl to it, it's this desire. Well, there's a term called deaths of despair. That is, when people don't see themselves being successful in society, their deaths from drug addiction and alcohol consumption and suicides uh, have risen substantially. We used to always say Japan had the highest suicide rates, and they're still pretty high, but American suicide rates are increasing rapidly, especially in white-skinned people, because they were supposed to have achieved uh, the American dream, you know, the rags-to-riches transformation, but it's a nightmare. And so uh, they do themselves in by all these uh, behaviors that aren't healthy. My guest is Stephen Bezruchka, that's spelled B-E-Z-R-U-C-H-K-A. He is Associate Teaching Professor Emeritus in the Departments of Health Systems and Population Health and of Global Health at the University of Washington's School of Public Health. He launched the Population Health Forum in 1998, and he's got a new book out. It's called Inequality Kills Us All. COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. One of your chapters has the title, Early Life Lasts a Lifetime. What do you mean by that? I've had a few major transformations in my thinking. One was, uh, as we've discussed, healthcare doesn't do that much. Personal behaviors uh, aren't as important as we think. And then I found studies that showed that conditions in early life, from the time you're conceived to your second birthday, program about half of our health as adults. That is, those first thousand days are when we observe the world starting at conception, actually starting at preconception, uh, and then we program our physiology to enable us to survive based on how we see the world both in the first nine months when uh, we live in a womb with a view, that is, our mother is living in the outside world, and she sees a lot of very supportive or stressful circumstances. Those change her hormones, uh, and then the hormones are transmitted to the fetus through the placenta. And so the fetus is monitoring the world outside to try and see 
when I come out, is it going to be a nice, nurturing, safe world and I can develop my organs to be really healthy and know I'm going to be taken care of? Or is it going to be a hostile world and I got to pop out and start fighting for my life? Well, the studies, now again, we have to look at research studies for these data, uh, but they show that a large proportion of our health is programmed through epigenetic means based on the circumstances, the environment, the physical, social environment from conception to about age two. That's a thousand days. By the time you're blowing out two candles on your second birthday, roughly half of your health as an adult is programmed. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be circum tragic circumstances that change that, uh, you know, Princess Diana's death at an early age and so on. Uh, but by and large, not, not so much. So we have another half of our health as adults to determine through the conditions later on. So Stephen, some of the diseases you were talking about that afflict people around the world and of course people in the US like like heart disease and hypertension. Are you saying that what happens in that first thousand days beginning with conception, including uh, the fetus in the womb, makes a big difference in terms of our propensity, our likelihood that we will get some of these diseases that may well kill us? Yes, I think the evidence is pretty strong there. Consider that uh, if you are stressed in the mid trimester, you know uh, there are three trimesters while you're in uh, in your mother's uterus. Uh, in the mid trimester, uh, your lungs are forming and your heart is forming, and so stress during that period will condition you to have lung disease and heart disease because that's when those organs are forming. So it plays out. Uh, that stress in the first nine months, almost any any stress will result in in diabetes. You know, we have high rates now of diabetes, and uh, and that is in large part due to the stress that we face while we're in utero throughout the throughout the nine months. And so, yes, uh, and then in later life. Um, for example, to tie inequality to early life. As you age, one of the common killers is uh, congestive heart failure, also termed heart failure. And there's a study among oh, 50 or 60 countries showing that your chance of dying from congestive heart failure is related to income inequality in the country in which you live. And uh, this is also related to the early life conditions. Uh, it's, a, it's a complex picture, but it all fits together, I think, uh, pretty well. So if, as you write, a better start to life predicts a better outcome over a person's lifespan, what should be done on a policy level? Because you were talking about sort of the, the policy emphasis of the, the graphic put out by the Hawaii Department of Health. What should be done, what must be done on a policy level, on a political level, in order to uh, change the game, in order to improve health outcomes overall? So to improve health outcomes, first of all, people have to be aware there's a problem. You know, most Americans, if you ask them, are we, uh, are, are we one of the healthiest countries in the world? They'll reply, of course. Uh, this is American exceptionalism, namely... When it comes to just about anything, we're the best in the model for the world. So without awareness uh, that our health is not so good, that we die younger than people in oh, 40, 50 countries, and that the reasons are not health care, they're not personal behaviors, until we have that awareness, we can't do much. John Kingdon studying... Um, major changes in the United States in the last century came up with three principles. One was people have to be aware of a problem. The second one is they have to rally around a, a solution that seems uh, feasible. And, and whereas that works in many other countries, 
In the United States, you need some transforming event. So, first of all, Americans have to be aware that they're dead first. Then we have to recognize that our policy choices, our political policy choices, are the ones that produce this. And we have to then uh, use a, a transforming event like COVID. It could have been a perfect transforming event. Uh, the storming of the Capitol, maybe that could have been a transforming event. But first, we've got to know that there's a problem, and then we have to know what a potential solution would be. What should be then the focus of policy? Who or in what stage of life should humans in the U.S., because we're talking about U.S. policy at this point, be assisted, be helped, be supported? So policy choices for early life are, are pretty simple. There are only two countries in the world that do not give a working woman who's pregnant paid time off after she has her baby, a, a national policy of paid maternity leave. One country is, of course, the United States. Uh, we say we can't afford it. And the other is Papua New Guinea, half of a big island north of Australia. Every other country in the world I'll qualify that with a population of a million or more, gives a, has a, a national paid maternity leave policy. Take uh, Sweden, one of the healthiest countries in the world. It is mandatory to take 444 days of paid leave with your full pay. The father has to take 13 weeks of paid leave as well. The Swedish government, for example, spends more government money on the first year of life than in any subsequent year. We spend our money, first of all, <laughs> on people at the end of life, government money and with Social Security, and in the educational system and a whole bunch of remedial activity for teenagers who are uh, failing in school. And uh, it's, it's the wrong priority if health is the goal. I'm joined by Stephen Bezruchka. We are talking about his new book, Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. Right. You write that in the U.S. we focus on end-of-life care rather than on nurturing early life. And yeah, we spend much more on later childhood and early adolescence than we do on as you said, the, the critical first 1,000 days of life beginning with a conception. You've looked into how life expectancy in different states correlate with the nature of state policy, liberal or conservative. What have you found? Well, I didn't do the research, but what the research shows is if you take the 50 U.S. states and you take life expectancy from about 1958 to 2017, that states with uh, more liberal political policies within the state had sustained life expectancy gains compared to states with conservative policies. And what happens in the states with uh, more liberal policies uh, they can be policies on abortion, on school, on uh, labor, uh, Medicaid, various welfare forms. Uh, there's now a, about a seven-year life expectancy gap between the healthiest states and the least healthy states that is related to the political policies over that period from 1958 to 2017. So that's life expectancy. You can also take adult mortality and find essentially the same relationship. So it makes a case that more liberal policy states are going to see better health improvements than ones with conservative policies. And in fact, some states have enacted things like paid family leave laws, correct? Yes, about six states. The first one was California back about uh, 2002. And they gave 12, no state gives more than 12 weeks of paid leave uh, 
you know, most countries give considerably more than that. And the pay scale is usually not very great. The uh, Washington State, where I live, interestingly, in 2007 passed a, uh, a state-paid maternity leave program, but they had no funding mechanism. So that's one way uh, in which you can uh, avoid having to act upon it. But finally, in 2017, uh, they passed a payroll tax, and it became operational in 2019. And uh, Connecticut, uh, Rhode Island, New York, a few other states have, have such policies, but only about a half a dozen. None give you pre-delivery leave, and, and certainly all the other rich countries give you up to around 18 weeks of paid leave while you're pregnant. We actually haven't talked much about COVID. I wonder what the COVID pandemic tells us, tells you, about the need to prioritize policies targeted to early childhood, and, and just what, what other lessons we can get from what COVID has done to us, given the approach of the United States government and state governments toward it. So we have studies uh, that show that early life conditions compromise mortality from, from COVID. And uh, something I haven't gotten into is measuring low birth weight or premature delivery. Uh, studies there are showing uh, an impact. At the state level in the United States, there is a relationship between income inequality and COVID mortality among the states. There's a relationship among 84 countries with income inequality and COVID mortality. There's also strong relationships between trust in government and income inequality. So the more unequal a country, the less the people trust the government, the less they want to comply with these ideas. And then in America, especially, you have this idea of, uh, of rampant individualism. I, I have the freedom to do whatever I want, and you can't tell me what to do. And uh, that, along with our public health response, our public health agencies have been massively defunded over the last decades. And you know, public health is not in the public's eye a force that needs to be reckoned with in contrast to other countries. So it's a constellation of, of ideas that have come together uh, and COVID has provided the lessons on the impact of inequality in early life on our health. And I'm afraid we may be entering the pandemicine. That is, we can expect future contagions to wreak havoc because we haven't learned the lessons from SARS-CoV-2, the causative agent of COVID-19. Well, before we get to more about kind of what actions people could and should take, and you have a chapter, actually more than a chapter in this book, Inequality Kills Us All, devoted to that. I wonder if you, if you have your book and you could read something that sort of sums up some of the main points you make in your book and you've made in this interview. It's on page 162. And if you can find that, I wonder if you could start reading from Given What We Have Learned So Far. Given what, so on page 162, given what we've learned so far, what might be the best tips for good health? Well, they might be along the lines of be born in a caring, sharing, and repairing society. Nurture strong family and social ties. Don't be poor. Don't have poor parents. Don't work in a stressful, low-paid, and meaningless job. Don't live in a country with high income or wealth inequality. Large health inequities. Lack of time and resources for parenting. And costly, specialized, inaccessible medical care. 
And given, Stephen, that excellent sum up of, of many uh, key arguments that you make and, and key insights that you share, what are you telling people, including students that you teach at the University of Washington, what are you telling people they can do to address the situation, to improve population health in the U.S., to get policymakers to target early life, which, as you say, is so critical to all of human life. What are you telling people they need to do in order to change the situation and perhaps even, and I think this is what you also advocate or say is necessary, create a social movement? So I, I've devoted the last chapter to summarizing a lot of what can be done at the individual, at the organizational, and at the national level. Uh, and I've, never, I've not found anything like this in other sources. I tell my students, uh, do what you enjoy, do what you have skills at, and do what you can do for a long time without being paid to do it. So my students, for example, are very good at social media outreach. And I used to, in my courses, have them create a physical face-to-face -face event in which they invited people and presented the ideas they've learned in the course. And then with COVID, uh, you know, we couldn't do that anymore as uh, we transformed to an online learning environment. And so I asked the students to use social media uh, to spread, to get the word out there. And whereas in a face-to-face -face meeting, they might get 10 people, that was a good turnout, uh, on social media, they reached thousands. You know, Instagram, uh, surveys on Google Forms, Facebook, TikTok. Really, I, I'm just astounded with the creativity that my students have. Another thing is to develop a, uh, a so-called elevator speech, namely take the ideas in the book and craft them into a, uh, something that lasts 10, 20, 30 seconds uh, that you might use in an elevator before you reach the floor you're aiming for. Um, talk to people uh, riding public transportation. Uh, write for publications you have access to. I've, I've given church sermons on these ideas. I've taught to retirees in uh, retirement centers. As a, uh, if you are uh, a supervisor in a company and you have employees, you can uh, have a discussion in the, in the uh, lunchroom. Uh, there are just a variety of different ways that you can get the word out. You can approach your, uh, your elected representatives. And uh, there's a key thing here. I once went to my uh, federal elected uh, congressman uh, with these ideas. I had a meeting, I presented them, and he said, well, how many of my constituents feel the same way you do? Now, if I'd come with a delegation, <laughs> it would have had much more impact than me going individually. Writing letters, uh, you know, with our, we have an economic inequity health task force in our Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. And one of the things we do is get involved in legislation uh, in the state capital, Olympia, writing letters, uh, going there and testifying. If you're a, an academic, you can teach courses. If you're a, a grade school teacher, I mean, ideally, we should be teaching this in grade school, grades four, five, six. I, I brought these ideas to grade six classrooms. One of my students developed a curriculum for grade six, and she piloted it in a classroom for a month, and that was highly successful. So uh, there are tremendous opportunities at all different levels. One of the things, you know, when I go into these different venues, I learn from my students. So I was once in a grade eight class presenting these ideas. 
and the students were clearly stumped. So I stopped, and I said, How do you come to know something is true? There was silence. The silence continued. You know how you, you don't want silence in that situation. You'll do something to break it. But I stood the silence, and eventually a boy raised his hand and said, If our parents tell us when we're very young, if our teachers and friends reinforce it, and if we've experienced it, then we know it to be true. I haven't found a more profound statement about epistemology, the science of how we come to know things are true, than what that grade 8 student said. we got to hear it from people we respect, has to be reinforced, and then experience. And the experience is the hard part, because what I'm telling you is you have to look at mortality statistics. And most of us, unless we tabulate mortality statistics at the uh, city or county or state level, can't experience this. So we've got to trust other sources, be they the United Nations or the World Health Organization. Stephen Bezruchka, he teaches, he has taught for many years in the departments of health systems and population health and of global health at the University of Washington's School of Public Health. He worked for decades as an emergency physician, again, a board member of the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. His new book out from Routledge is called Inequality Kills Us All. COVID-19's Health Lessons for the World. Stephen, thank you so much for your work over the years, for writing this book, and for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, CS. I, I, I really appreciate it. And that program first aired on January 24th of this year. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against.